The Democrats are paper tigers. Their seven-year odyssey to bring down Trump has left them more vulnerable than they realized. Quote, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Shakespeare. Despite the shock and awe of the four indictments against former President Donald Trump, the Democrats are more vulnerable than in decades. It isn't just the Afghanistan exit, the economy, or the cancer growing inside the presidency. It's also the radical policies the Democrats have embraced since Biden took office in 2021. They're hemorrhaging working-class voters, especially among groups they believe belong to them like those in the Black and Hispanic communities. They refuse to face their own failings, and why should they? With no legacy media to hold them to account, they can pretend nothing to see here. Move along, move along. The Democrats present a front of normalcy, but something is eaten away at their foundation. The more they go after Trump, the weaker they appear. Most Americans are left wondering why they can't just trust the voters. They aren't defending democracy as they keep insisting they are. What they mean is their power. If they can convince the public that Trump is a criminal and a felon, they can deflect what they did to essentially rig the 2020 election, not to mention how they're failing the American people now. They call those who question their methods in 2020 conspiracy theorists, or they think they're too dumb to know any better. But I was a Democrat heading into the election. I not only voted for Biden, I actively supported him. I thought the election would have been fair. But what I saw them do to drag Biden over the finish line shocked me. I left the Democratic Party thinking we'd never have a fair election again in this country. I was surprised Trump fought as hard as he did. The legitimate complaints about their well-funded cabal were drowned out by easily recognizable, fabricated ones by Sidney Powell. I wasn't a Trump supporter, I wasn't even a Republican, but I was watching the election closely, and I knew that if they hadn't intervened, Trump would have won. How do I know this? Because Trump was doing five rallies a day to make his pitch to the public that the left had lost their minds. They had. And he was the better alternative. He was. But it didn't matter because operatives picked up the votes long before election day. Democrats have always had an enthusiasm gap. They can't get their supporters to turn out at the polls. This has plagued them as long as I've been a Democrat, with the exception of Obama. This was what hurt Hillary Clinton in 2016. Her voters didn't bother showing up because they assumed she had it in the bag. But now as I watch them pretend nothing happened, that they didn't go to extraordinary lengths to remove any possibility that Trump might win, that they even funded the protests to make things seem as out of control as possible, that they spent $1 billion just to reclaim power, left me feeling disgusted and disillusioned. Just as the impeachment of Trump now appears to have been an overreaction to Biden's corrupt business dealings in Ukraine, so too was Trump's fight against an extraordinary election, met with a January 6th riot wildly out of character for MAGA, and certainly not part of Trump's plan on that day, not to mention how Trump supporters were now demonized as terrorists attacking the country they love. Just as we were gaslighted all through 2020, 
With the Democrats outright lying to all of us about the protests, about COVID, about social distancing. After the election, we were all gaslighted when we dared to object to how the election was hijacked by wealthy and powerful people who apparently run this country. What other option did Trump and his supporters have but to fight back and protest? Watching the fourth indictment roll out, yet another imagined charge against a version of Trump that doesn't exist, it's hard not to see that this is the end of the Democratic Party one way or another. Maybe they can eke out another victory in 2024 as long as they have Trump to scare voters to the polls, but they have nothing to offer the American people by now. And here they are again, setting us all up for another PSYOP, wherein they pretend Trump is an emergency but also need him to raise money and manipulate the media narrative to silence dissent. They gave away the game when they spent $60 pushing MAGA candidates in the primary because they were easier to beat. And miraculously, on the heels of Biden's blood-red fascist speech, David DePap shows up as an October surprise at the Pelosi's, scaring last-minute undecideds and independents Biden's way. It's all so clean... They're riding the Trump wave as long as they can, milking it for all it's worth. Here is Glenn Greenwald pointing out just how arrogant and hypocritical the charges against Trump in Georgia really are. Now, Stacey Abrams' attempt to insist that the election in 2018 that she lost was the byproduct of fraud was not confined to legal challenges, all of which she lost. She engaged in a public campaign to persuade the public that She only lost because of fraud. This is a five-minute or so video of her repeatedly doing that. We'll just show you a minute or so just to give you a sense for how sustained and committed her effort was to deny the legitimacy of the 2018 election that continues until this very day. I do have one very affirmative statement to make. We won. But I didn't lose. I got the votes. But we won't know exactly how many because of how they cheated. I did win my election. I just didn't get to have the job. We were robbed of an election. Just using the word rigged, using the word steal, do you think it's dangerous going into 2020? I, I don't, because we can actually back it up. And so in response to what I believe was a stolen election, and I'm not saying they stole it from me, they stole it from the voters of Georgia. Back to the outside, ask if I'm ever going to concede. The answer is no. This is not a speech of concession. Because concession means to acknowledge an action is right, true, or proper. And I will not concede because the erosion of our democracy is not right. People will be It was not a free and fair election. I think the election was stolen from the people of Georgia. I believe it was stolen from the voters. Thousands of Georgians had their voices stolen because they were not able to cast ballots. And they cannot be guaranteed that their votes will be counted in 2020 if we don't do this right. If what happens to you happens... Now, there you see, that's a minute long of what we showed you. There's five minutes at least of that. She's going on every MSNBC program and just explicitly stating that the election was stolen from her, that the results are illegitimate. If there was fraud in the campaign that was outcome determinative on the very same MSNBC shows that just two years later would look in the camera and tell you that anyone who does that is destroying American democracy, even though Democrats have been doing that forever, every time they lose an election. I saw some DeSantis supporters today saying that Stacey Abrams is different. She didn't go as far as Trump. But again, what did Trump do that is criminal that Stacey Abrams didn't? Trump 
believe that all the legal processes and all the attempts to persuade officials to look again were perfectly legal. He was told by lawyers that they were. And again, he didn't do anything classically criminal. You can think of crimes that could easily be committed in the furtherance of a criminal scheme to overturn an election. Threatening people with violence, using violence, blackmail, extortion, bribery, etc. Trump did none of that. You really have to stretch to turn these into crimes. Now, you probably recall that there was actually an effort after the 2016 election to take the certified outcome of the states where Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump and turn them into Clinton states in the Electoral College by convincing Electoral College members that they had the right to ignore the certified results of their state and vote for Hillary Clinton or not for Donald Trump, even though their states had cast their votes and their electoral electoral, uh, votes for Trump. Here in the Atlantic, very approvingly reporting on the, quote, Hamilton electors, hoping for an Electoral College revolt. This is a scheme implemented by Democratic operatives. They campaigned. They called these electorates. They waged a campaign publicly and privately to induce them to change their votes, to become faithless, and to ignore the outcomes of their state. Why is that not criminal to do? Why is that a legitimate, lawful means of overturning an election, whereas what Donald Trump did is unlawful? That is not an easy question to ask, to answer, rather. Here, from the Washington Times in February of 2021, Democrats copy Trump playbook, alleged voting machine flaws in a tight New York House race. Quote, taking a page out of the Donald Trump playbook, prominent Democratic Party lawyer Mark Elias is alleging voter machine discrepancies in a close New York congressional race. And the machines being criticized are Dominion voting systems. The same ballot scanners vilified by Trump supporters in battleground states and defended by winning Democrats. Mr. Elias of the D.C. firm Perkins Coy led a team of President Biden's attorneys successfully fighting Trump challenges in over 50 courts. And yet he then went on and in a court hearing contested the reliability of Dominion voting systems by alleging that there was fraud that led to the victory by the Republican congressional candidate over the Democratic one. Part of their ongoing revenge fantasy is the continual humiliation of Trump and the rights they keep taking away from him. It is positively end empire decadence, the pleasure they take in watching Trump suffer. The harder they go at him, the more money they'll raise from people like Barbara Streisand and Bette Midler, who've been dreaming of this moment for seven years. Podcast listeners, a picture from Fox News. Manhattan judge refuses to recuse himself from Trump case, despite donation to Biden. And a tweet from Vivek Ramaswamy, quote, Trump should take a shot at filing an immediate motion to dismiss Fulton County on due process grounds. Publicly releasing indictment charges before a grand jury has signed off as an awful procedural violation. Bad actors in the justice system must be held accountable when they're downright sloppy in their overreach. They want anyone who ever went out on a limb for Trump, his friends, supporters, and allies, to suffer too. If they can scare them, they can maybe extract something useful to attempt to convict Trump on something. They don't care now what that something is. For podcast listeners, a picture. Trump co-defendants will be booked at Fulton County Jail on 2020 election charges. 
They even feel justified to eliminate Trump's right to legal representation, as when the 65 Project and the Lincoln Project set about scaring and intimidating any lawyers who might dare to fight on Trump's behalf. They were emboldened to do this and very likely rewarded handsomely with donations. For podcast listeners, a gallery of photos. Law firm Porter Wright withdraws from Trump campaign lawsuit in Pennsylvania. That Letitia James, Alvin Bragg, and Fannie Willis are all black prosecutors feeds the fanaticism of the white ruling aristocracy and absolves them of their own white guilt. To them, this is the ultimate revenge for a racist like Trump. All the better to have the kind of optics worthy of a modern Hollywood courtroom drama. For podcast listeners, pictures of Letitia James, Jack Smith, Fannie Willis, and Alvin Bragg. They know that if black prosecutors are involved, they will never be held to the same scrutiny or even mild criticism by the legacy press. In fact, it will be just the opposite. They'll be turned into legends. They will be fawned over and praised, as Glenn Greenwald expresses so well. Now, as I said, the media is already doing to Fannie Willis, the district attorney in Georgia who brought this indictment, what they did to Jack Smith. Here's a remarkable article that just turns her into kind of a folk hero in the most naked and repellent ways. And in doing so, says some things along the way that I think are highly revealing. So there you see her. There's her obviously posed picture. She's standing in front of old law books looking into the distance, not to the camera. I don't know what that's intended to convey, but obviously she posed for her glamour shots. The Guardian's headline on this article is the fight for democracy. That's what Fannie Willis is doing. She's fighting for democracy by trying to imprison the most popular politician in the United States, or at least the most popular presidential candidate at the moment. And they have a threat from her, quote, he's going to be very surprised. Georgia DA Fannie Willis prepares to face off with Trump. Legal watchers say the Fulton County District Attorney's entire career has prepared her for the prosecution of Donald Trump. I bet it has. She's, the article says, quote, the synopsis for a Fannie Willis biopic, they're already imagining what the film is going to look like, celebrating this great woman's life. The synopsis for a Fannie Williams bio, Willis biopic would probably go something like this. In Fulton County, the first black woman to serve as district attorney takes on an unlikely case. Willis grew up attending court with her father, a defense attorney in Black Panther. Now... She sits on the opposite side of the courtroom, hoping to indict a former president who sought to overturn election results and often espoused white supremacist, white supremacist rhetoric while doing so. This is a news article. The film's montage would pull from real life, depicting a determined, unflappable Willis. Remember the headlines about Jack Smith's steely-eyed gaze? Willis has a determined, unflappable demeanor as she relentlessly pours over documents, leading her team through the long work hours and security risks that that come with bringing an indictment against an often inflammatory former president, even as national attention on the case reached a groundswell. We'd watch her face racist threats and unsubstantiated rumors of misconduct, but she'd refuse to back down from the task at hand. How are they not so embarrassed to write this, to write this copy? 
She'd advocate for what she believed to be. This is a film they're imagining. This is starting the entire article. This is a, a film this reporter has fantasized in his head where this prosecutor trying to put Donald Trump in jail, who's a liberal and a Democrat and a admitted one, is the star of this film, and she's being depicted as this very brave and intrepid figure standing down racist violence. Quote, she'd advocate for what she believed to be right, even when it wasn't popular. How is that not popular? Every institution of liberal authority in the United States is celebrating her, including The Guardian. She'd appear in press conferences and in media interviews delivering stern sound bites such as, quote, Lady Justice is actually blind. This is the reality. If you come into my community and you commit a crime, you deserve to be held responsible. Her investigation is focused on Trump's efforts to subvert the will of Georgia's voters, including his campaign's plot to assemble a state of fate electorate and Trump's phone call to Georgia Republican Secretary of State, Vlad Raffensperger, asking him to, quote, find 11,780 votes, which would make him the winner over Joe Biden in the state. In her first term as DA and amid ongoing conversations about criminal justice reform in Georgia and beyond, Willis has not only prepared to face off with the former president and his legal team, she's also been tough on crime in a number of other ways, too. These people in liberal media two years ago were saying to be tough on crime was to be a white supremacist. They marched in the streets demanding, demanding the dismantling of the police state and the emptying of prisons. And now they worship prosecutors like pop stars. They, they repudiate every professed value that they have. The minute it comes to finding a way to undermine Donald Trump or preventing, him from having, preventing Democrats from having to actually defeat him in an election and being able to turn him into a criminal, they're talking about tough-on-crime politics like they're Barry Goldwater in the 1960s even though they want to empty prisons and defund the police. If they somehow manage to take Trump out of the race, the Republicans will clean their clock, which is why they want to damage Trump but also keep him in play. Maybe if they push hard enough, they can stoke the outrage to cause another January 6th. From the Daily Wire, Politico reported that Twitter was ordered to overturn the following information to prosecutors. Accounts associated with at real Donald Trump that the former president might have used on the same device. Devices used to log into the real Donald Trump account. IP addresses used to log into the account between October 20 and January 21. Privacy settings and history. All tweets created, drafted, favorited, liked, or retweeted by real Donald Trump, including any subsequently deleted. All direct messages sent from, received by, stored in draft form, in or otherwise associated with real Donald Trump. All records of searches from October 2020 to January 21. Location information for the user, real Donald Trump, from October 20 to January 21. Trump has exposed just who and what our government actually is and how little power we have as citizens. If they can obtain a search warrant of a former president of the United States for drafts of tweets, likes, and favorites, imagine what they can do to you. The prosecutors can't back off now. Winning means justifying everything they've done for the past seven years. It also means justifying the extraordinary steps they took to rig the 2020 election with dark money, ballot harvesting, 
and big tech censorship. If they do prevail, that will be our new normal. It almost already is. We can't let them do that. The best way to fight them is to make voters an offer they can't refuse. Paper tigers. Republicans are on the right side of history and the Democrats are not. It is the job of every Republican to make sure every voter understands that a vote for the Democrats is a vote for Joe Biden's policies on gender-affirming care and the abandonment of women's rights to compete fairly in sports, not to mention safety in private spaces. I am a one-issue voter. That means I will vote for any Republican who understands the need to put the brakes on a fast-moving contagion. It could not be more serious. I will take its place alongside other horrors society of the past went along with out of social pressure, like eugenics and lobotomies. We're just now seeing the start of massive lawsuits against school districts, hospitals, clinicians, and in some cases maybe even parents, who fail to protect children and young adults from what amounts to medical experiments. Tulsi Gabbard tells the story of Chloe Cole, who has been bravely on the front lines, bringing her story to the American public. Now, at age 11, Chloe Cole was just a girl living in Central Valley, California, where, like a lot of kids, she grew up roughhousing with her older brothers, playing outside in the dirt, playing video games. She was a tomboy. She found herself relating more to boys, struggling to make friends with girls, and, and just not really fitting in at school. She got on her phone and started looking at social media, and she heard people telling her, well, you're obviously a boy stuck in a girl's body. Chloe told her family and her friends that she was a boy named Leo, and she began her medical transition at just 13 years old. Shortly after that, she had a double mastectomy, her breasts cut off at age 15. After she had this surgery, she began to feel a deep sense of regret. And that is what began her journey to detransition. I realized after maturing a bit more that a child does not in fact know who they are at 12 years old. I realized that I wanted to be what I always was. When Cole went to Congress to tell her story, the Democrats unanimously sided against her and with Big Pharma and the gender clinics to justify their abuse of young people who can't possibly consent to these life-altering changes to their bodies. Here is Chloe Cole. My name is Chloe Cole, and I am a detransitioner. Another way to put that would be, I used to believe that I was born the wrong body, and the adults in my life, whom I trusted, affirmed my belief, and this caused me lifelong irreversible harm. I speak to you today as a victim of one of the biggest medical scandals in the history of the United States of America. I speak to you in the hope that you will have the courage to bring the scandal to an end and ensure that other vulnerable teenagers, children, and young adults don't go through what I went through. We're not talking about nose jobs and eye lifts. We're talking about amputating teenage girls' breasts, surgical and chemical castration of young men, and normalized sterilization of the young. Here is another clip from the congressional hearing. Before I provide a few opening remarks, I'm going to play a two-minute excerpt of a podcast interview with an individual named Dr. Blair Peters uh, at the uh, Oregon Health Science University in Portland. He calls himself the queer surgeon and he boasts about the shocking, fully experimental, irreversible, and life-altering invasive procedures that he and others are performing on children 
to surgically modify their genitals. I want everyone to hear this in his own words, not mine, and take special note of the frank admission that no one has published any studies on these shocking procedures, and they are, quote, as he says, just kind of learning and figuring out what works, unquote. Later in this video, uh, he admits to performing, quote, huge reconstructive surgery, rearranging anatomy, and then acknowledges that they know almost nothing about the outcomes for these children. And quote, he says, we'll know more in five to 10 years. And quote, it'll be fascinating to see how all these kids turn out. Wow. With unanimous consent, I will enter the link to this full video in the record of our hearing because everyone should watch it. It is absolutely nightmarish and surreal to hear the description of what these people are doing to the bodies of young children. Please play that clip and I will say viewer discretion is advised. So 80% or so of my practice is gender affirming surgery. Um, so I do facial, chest surgery and genital surgery. Um, but the majority of my practice and sort of where my passion lies is really genital surgery cases. So I do a lot of vaginoplasty and a lot of phalloplasty. I would just say they're expanding in either direction. <laughs> um, so yeah, a lot of adolescents um, presenting for surgical intervention, but also a lot of people that are like in their seventies sometimes coming in for genital surgery and then everything in between. Um, but the, the adolescents for sure present some unique challenges. Um, obviously there's great evidence supporting pubertal suppression for a whole variety of benefits. Um, but the one thing that is very new is genital surgery in someone that has underwent pubertal suppression. Um, not so much an issue in um, someone with assigned female at birth anatomy that undergoes a phalloplasty because we're creating something with a you know, free tissue transfer or flap anyway, but a much bigger issue for an individual that's undergoing a penile inversion vaginoplasty. Um, because we use all of that tissue to basically create the vulva as well as line the internal vaginal canal. And as a specialty, um, those of us that do a fairly high volume of genital gender affirming surgery, you know, we've maybe done a couple, a handful of pubertally suppressed adolescents as a field and no one's published on it yet. Um, OHSU is, we're just putting our first series together as we're kind of learning and figuring out what works. Um, but it's really changing things um, because you don't have enough tissue to line the vaginal canal. So you either have to take a skin graft or take skin from elsewhere or use some artificial product. Um, the way that we're dealing with it is by using a robot and we're basically performing intra-abdominal um, components of the surgery. So we're using peritoneum, which is the inner lining of the abdomen to line most of the vaginal canal. And by doing that, that allows us to use all of the remaining tissue externally to create a vulva um, and try to make also an aesthetic result. This isn't just one or two members of Congress. This is a signature policy of the Biden administration. He owns this, as does every Democrat that goes along with it. There is enough information thanks to brave activists like Chloe Cole to show some leadership on this issue. Yet the Democrats are cowards. Seated across from Riley Gaines in Congress were prominent Democrats like Cory Booker, Sheldon Whitehouse, Chris Coons, and Amy Klobuchar. None of them had the decency to support Gaines. All they did was gaslight her. 
Here is Gaines in Congress. Why were you threatened and barricaded into a room and held for ransom for hours on end? I mean, what, what was it you were saying that was so, so terrible? I was invited to speak on my experience of my senior year in competing against a male. Um, nothing opinionated about what I shared. It was surely the exact lived experience of what me and my teammates and fellow competitors dealt with. And so I spoke. I, after my speech, there was, of course, a lot of protesters in the room, which I'm totally fine with people protesting. It's their right to protest. But what I'm not fine with is when it does turn violent in the way that it did. Because protesters afterwards, they rushed into the room. They turned off the lights. They rushed to the front. Um, myself and others were assaulted. And that's ultimately when I was held for hostage for three and a half hours. This is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, thank you for your courage in the midst of that. Let's talk a little bit about the message that you were sharing. and you started. Jamie Reed has been one of the few gender clinicians willing to put her entire career on the line to tell the truth. Most people simply don't know how bad it is because of the ongoing silencing of necessary information to warn parents what awaits their children. We sent them into the lion's den when we gave them smartphones and sent them off to radicalized schools and universities. So let's look at this. What do we mean by puberty blockers? What do we mean by these drugs? And what are the potential side effects of these drugs? So the puberty blockers we were using were mostly their implants that go into the arm or their injectables that are used mm -hmm. on a monthly or three-month basis. Um, in our center, you had to be at least in the very initial start of puberty to get a puberty blocker. Um, but one of the things we were starting to see was that some of the kids put on the puberty blockers mental health was getting worse once they started the blocker. And that's mm -hmm. against what the narrative tells us. The narrative says these interventions are supposed to make people better. And what we were seeing was parents calling and saying, my child has had the blocker in for a month. They're crying every day. They've had the blocker in for three months and they're now failing out of school. Um, things that were supposed to be better, getting better were getting worse. In the center that I worked in, um, I started there when we were still supposed to be operating under the WPATH guidelines, uh, standard of care seven, which had some age kind of ideas for when people were supposed to start hormones. Um, WPATH seven was supposed to be 16, and it said only in rare and you know, kind of urgent cases should you be under the age of 16. We were pretty much putting anybody on testosterone at 13 and a half if that's what they wanted and they got to us in time. And what does that do to you if you are a young person who's been given testosterone? Well, it depends. So if you were given a blocker first. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we blocked you and then put you on a cross-sex hormone, we are potentially basically causing you to be infertile for life and testosterone um you know the 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 effects that kids reported that they wanted happened pretty quick so we would permanently affect your voice and your voice would be dropped into a male pitch uh, you would see growth on your clitoris into what we would refer to as a micro penis um, we would 
start seeing atrophy and your vaginal canal would start to have atrophic features. Your All of your body fat would start to move and shift around. Um, you would have facial hair growth. A lot of our patients would start to start losing the hair on the top of their head. Um, and then we would see mood changes. We would see patients who were, again, they were supposed to be getting better. Their mental health was supposed to be getting better. A lot of times it was not doing what we thought it was going to do. And if you were on feminizing hormones, you would start growing breast tissue. Your fat would move. Um, and again, if you were put on blockers first, it would render you potentially infertile for life. And now we also know for the kids, the, the boys, if we block you and put you on feminizing hormones, we also are potentially making you have sexual dysfunction for life. What, what, what do you mean by sexual dysfunction? So in the boys, blockers make it so that they never grow the penis or the testicles. If you never go through puberty and you never have those hormones affect that area, you are left with the same kind of penis size that you would have that kids have when they're little before they go through puberty. And then also we knew that the feminizing hormones would make it so you had a lot of erectile dysfunction, the testicles would shrink and atrophy, and we would be causing changes to that part of the body that were irreversible. The Republicans now have the opportunity to unite in collective purpose to stop this social contagion and join the UK, Sweden, and other countries that have wisely stopped the practice of cross-sex hormones and surgeries until more research is known. We can do nothing about pregnant women who give birth to babies, then lie to their children that a man did it all, actually. When their children grow up, they too will be forced to accept what can only be described as a mass delusion. But we can elect Republicans to vote in a federal ban on gender-affirming care, to save countless victims from destroying their bodies for life. Because all of this must be laid at the feet of the Democratic Party, this is an opportunity for Republicans to peel off voters in a way they haven't been able to do in decades, especially with Black, Hispanic, and Asian voters. But it will also have to find its way to people on the left who would never vote for Republicans, but would make an exception in this case. It's just a matter of how many of them are really willing to put their vote behind their principles. The Republicans are the heroes of history now because they are the only political movement taking on the powerful activists that have captured so many of our institutions and now, thanks to Biden, our government. And for that, they will have my vote. But if they ignore this monumental moment and keep fighting about Trump, they will be as weak and ineffectual as the Democrats, paper tigers who are all too easily blown away by the gathering storm. Thank you for listening to my Substack, sashastone.substack.com. And remember, 
to thine own self be true. Nothing will keep us together